The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Tehama County Farmer John Duarte's battle against the Army Corps of Engineers and the Waters of the United States regulations has ended before this farmland plowing case even went to trial. We have the details. Ag commodity markets are tumbling after the latest USDA crop forecasts are released. Build it now, fix it later. That's the mantra for the proponents of the Delta Tunnels project. But will fixes ever be approved? We'll tell you about the committee that will oversee any project fixes. The price of California avocados? It's going up, and you can blame that on the drought, too. And we talk about the benefits of cover cropping. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Is the John Duarte farmland case over? The story took some interesting twists and turns recently. On Friday, August 11th, the Butte County Farm Bureau visited Duarte's property near Red Bluff. They issued a challenge for other Farm Bureau organizations to join it in supporting a farmer's legal battle against the federal government. The lawsuit revolves around John Duarte, a farmer with agricultural interests throughout California. Duarte Nursery is headquartered outside of Modesto, but also includes farmland near Red Bluff. Back in 2012, Duarte was in the process of planting wheat at the time, and a cease and desist notice alleging violation of the Clean Water Act was issued. The Army Corps of Engineers insisted he was deeply plowing, thus destroying vernal pools. Duarte has a different view of that. The vernal pools are normal, healthy, functioning vernal pools today. They came out here during in 2015 during a drought, and they were n- normal functioning vernal pools for a drought. But after two normal to wet years of rain, these vernal pools are completely normal again. In fact, two studies showed that he was only plowing the land to maybe a depth of eight inches, probably shallower. At that press conference Friday at the Red Bluff Farm, Duarte was joined by some rather heavy hitters, including State Senator Jim Nielsen. And valiant warriors like Duarte Nurseries sacrifice their whole future, what they've spent their lives building on this fight. But they're fighting it, folks, for all of us. And that's why we must fight it with them. Duarte appealed the fines, but that case was lost. And the penalty phase, which seeks $2.8 million in fines and millions more in payments for wetland mitigation, That case was set to begin the following Tuesday in Sacramento. Butte County Farm Bureau Director Clark Becker challenged other farm bureaus throughout the state and the country to monetarily support Duarte's efforts to fight this case. On behalf of the 1,065 Butte County Farm Bureau members, I challenge every California Farm Bureau and every county Farm Bureau in California and every state and county Farm Bureau in the United States to donate ten dollars per ag member to the Duarte Legal Fund and his fight. Duarte said he had hoped since the Trump administration seemed to want to help farmers then there would be some relief. But there's been disappointment so far that the issue wasn't resolved. In fact, Attorney General Jeff Sessions took no action to drop the federal charges against Duarte. And just before his trial was set to start on Tuesday, August 15th, Duarte settled with the federal government. He agreed to pay $330,000 in fines and another $770,000 on compensatory mitigation. That's a far cry from what the government was seeking, a $2.8 million fine as well as tens of millions of dollars in mitigation expenses. 
Duarte told the Sacramento Bee that he settled reluctantly but feared a big penalty would jeopardize his family and his main business, Duarte Nursery of Modesto. Despite settling for far less than they were seeking, federal officials said the agreement shows the law must be obeyed. Duarte still insists he did nothing wrong and its plowing activities caused no harm to the wetlands on his Tehama property. The settlement forbids Duarte from dredging or farming the 44 acres that had been disturbed with the exception of moderate non-irrigated cattle grazing for 10 years. The Waters of the United States rules are designed to protect navigable rivers, streams, and other waterways, but in recent years the government has been expanding the rules to include wetlands that fed into rivers to the growing outrage of farmers. The rules exempt ordinary farming activities that are considered established and ongoing, but U.S. District Judge Kimberly Muller ruled that Duarte's actions weren't allowed because the Tehama field had been idle for more than 20 years. Farmers are still scratching their heads. Where do they stand now when it comes to these regulations? Mike Wade of the California Farm Water Coalition told the Sacramento Bee, we're still looking at the same kinds of risks going forward that Duarte was facing. It would have been nice knowing where we are in terms of federal regulatory oversight. But the case has taken another interesting turn. The state has stepped in. A few days after the Trump administration officially proposed rolling back the waters of the United States rules, the California Water Resources Control Board proposed a new rule package that could present even tougher wetland protections. California's waters of the state rule would protect a broad array of wetlands, including certain small streams and creeks, and a greater share of California's vernal pools than the federal law covered. The State Water Board plans a public hearing on its Waters of the State proposal September 6th in Sacramento. This is an historic day for the United States. For the first time, we will start negotiating to revise a major free trade agreement. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer joined by Canadian and Mexican government counterparts at the opening press conference for the first round of the North American Free Trade Agreement renegotiations, what USTR is referring to as NAFTA 2.0. We all agree that NAFTA needs updating. It's a 23-year-old agreement, and our economies are very different than they were in the 1990s. Expanding on those thoughts were Canadian Minister Krista Freeland and Mexican Secretary Ildefonso Guajardo Villarreal. Strong economic fundamentals are a compelling argument for bolstering what works and improving what can be made better. Mexico is committed to obtain a win-win-win for all three countries. The opening round in Washington, D.C. is scheduled to last through Sunday. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa fields are being irrigated, cut, and baled. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Corn is being harvested for silage. Cotton was blooming and forming bowls and continued to be irrigated. Sorghum for silage continues to be cultivated and irrigated. The mid-season peach, nectarine, and plum harvests are ongoing. Harvested stone fruit orchards are pruned and topped. Asian pears were harvested. Wine grape harvest is beginning. The table grape harvest is in full swing. Olives are developing well. The Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Regreening continued, though, to be a problem due to high temperatures. Finger limes are being harvested. Almond shaking began in some early varieties. As whole split was underway, almond orchard ground prep continues for the upcoming harvest. Walnuts continue to be irrigated. They were sizing well. Pistachios continue to be irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in many orchards. 
In San Mateo County, acres of beans and peas were in full bloom, ready to set pods. There's good news on the processing tomato front in Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties. 45 to 55 tons per acre are being harvested. In Tulare County, certified producers were picking tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers, mainly for sale at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers continue to be harvested, packed, and shipped domestically. The sweet corn harvest continues and was available for sale at roadside stands as well as at local farmers' markets. Non-irrigated pasture and rangeland quality continues to decline, however. Supplemental feeding increases as the nutritional quality of grasses diminishes. Some cattle were moved to higher elevation pastures. Sheep grazed on retired pasture as well as on dormant alfalfa. The bees are working in melon and sunflower fields. Sacramento Valley rice grower Everett Willie told the Rice News what work needs to be done on his harvesters to make sure they're in good working order before the harvest begins soon. Today we're in the shop working on our 80-10 case harvester to uh, get ready for harvest because it's coming up pretty quick. We got kind of a big job on this one. We had that whole left track off, changed the planetary on it. This right here is the rotor pulled it out because there was some damage to it and uh, it seems like the more we get into it the more we find. The goal is to fix it all before harvest and keep it all up to you know speed so that we don't actually lose time while we're harvesting because with us small two harvesters you need your machines running and running efficiently. And before that rice harvest begins, hundreds of growers and rice industry officials are expected at this year's Rice Field Day at the Rice Experiment Station in Biggs. Field Day will be held Wednesday, August 30th. The program will start at 8.30 a.m. Field tours will occur from 9.30 to noon. The tours will emphasize progress in rice variety improvement as well as weed control. Folks are still reacting to those first USDA crop forecast numbers based on surveys of farmers and fields, numbers that were generally above the trade expectations. USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, after looking at the numbers showing yield and production prospects for corn, soybeans, spring wheat and cotton, all higher than most private trade analysts had expected. There was a price reaction, too, right after the USDA report was issued. Futures prices took a hit and long term, Johansson says, if these forecasts hold true, it uh, won't lend support to prices. If anything, I'd say that this this first real outlook from the objective standpoint that likely that prices may head down a little bit. But the question is, will those yield and crop production forecasts turn out to be correct when it comes harvest time? And indeed, there are some who don't think they will. We have seen news reports quoting some producers in places that have not had good growing weather as wondering where in the world USDA came up with such large national average yield forecasts for soybeans, corn, and cotton in particular. USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer told me that unlike some years in which weather and growing conditions are fairly similar over entire regions, this year we've seen huge differences between just a, a few miles. You got some places with abundant rain, some places with short rain, some places where the crop went in fairly easy, other places where it was a struggle and it was difficulty. So I think that part of the trouble with this crop is it, it's the planting and the progression of the crop has been really uneven geographically. And with such wide variances in conditions, that makes assessment of the crop for the market 
quite difficult. It also makes it so that only a few growers may be experiencing the national average yield. Most growers may be far above or far below. Also, remember, those forecasts were made based on field evaluations by trained crop enumerators and interviews of thousands of farmers. All of that, though, was cut off as of August 1st. And Seth Meyer says, Let's all remember that this is only the first look at this crop. We got a ways to go, but we got a couple more observations and they'll be back out there in the field doing it again next month. And with crops more mature, we'll have a much better idea of what final production figures might be. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Commodity markets dropped sharply after the USDA issued its August yield estimates. Corn and soybean production estimates came in significantly higher than most of the pre-report expectations. Dr. John Newton, American Farm Bureau Federation Director of Market Intelligence, talked about where USDA may have found those extra bushels. USDA came out with corn yields that are above trend and and soybean yields that were well above the market expectations. I mean, we saw prices really tumble following the report. You know, where USDA is getting this information, leaning on the crop condition information as much as they are some of their surveys. Newton says another big shock in the report was the predicted soybean yield. Combine a record amount of soybean acres planted with the USDA prediction, and Newton said U.S. farmers would put out another record crop. Last year, the record crop was due to very exceptional soybean yields, and this year, the record crop is really driven by an expansion in planted area, but certainly that yield number coming in where it did led to another record crop to be expected for soybeans, and that's really pushed prices lower in the face of You know, a record crop last year and a record crop that came online from South America, another bumper harvest of soybeans here in the United States. In order to move that product, it's going to move at a lower price. Newton says the key thing to remember is these aren't the final numbers. Late planted corn in several parts of the country means it's still maturing, so there will be opportunities for USDA to make adjustments in yield projections and planted acreage. While I expect the crop size to get a little bit smaller, I don't think it's going to get substantially smaller just because conditions are close to where they were on average. I think crop yields coming in around trend and a haircut to harvested area should work to pull down, especially on the corn side, the ending stocks next year. There's a lot of uncertainty in the market. Any potential reductions in that crop size could provide an opportunity to to lock in some more favorable prices for that new crop corn and soybeans. Chad Smith, Washington. California's projected avocado crop for this year is 215 million pounds. That's a dramatic drop from last year's crop of 400 million pounds. And the volume of avocados produced in California has dropped significantly just in the past month alone. During the week of July 16th, California produced 9.3 million pounds of avocados. This last week, California produced 3.7 million pounds. Comparatively, during the same early August week last year, California produced 10.7 million pounds of the fleshy green fruit. Produce Express owner and general manager Jim Boyce told the Sacramento Bee that avocado prices may climb to $1.50 this coming week and could reach $2.50 to $3 per fruit after retail markup towards the end of August. That's roughly double what's typical during this time before the imported fruit can start to ease the shortage and lower the cost. The shortage won't truly ease up until Mexican avocados start shipping over the border in higher volume, and that'll be in September. Mexican avocado production is also down this year, but not nearly as sharply as in California. 
Why the shortage of California avocados? Lasting effects from the drought, despite a rainy winter as a culprit, and years of dry conditions have made trees less healthy, and it's affected their ability to hold fruit. But if you're an avocado fan, be glad you live in the Golden State. Avocado prices will likely be even higher outside of California. No one can precisely say what the Delta Tunnels project will actually do to the Delta. It's a $17 billion project. There is a lot of uncertainty. And one of the ideas is called adaptive management. Basically, we'll build it now and fix it later. The whole concept of adaptive management does have some scientific backing. But would this work with the Delta Tunnels project? One person who has been following the story of the Delta Tunnels for a while is Alex Breitler of the Stockton Record. He's been reporting on the ups and downs of the Delta Tunnels project. And I guess, Alex, we should start off that if there is going to be a Delta Tunnels, it probably won't start working until the 2030s, I guess. Right. Yeah, this is a very long term issue that we're talking about here. Uh, you know, they don't even have all the authorizations that they need yet to actually build the tunnels, and the construction project itself would take about 13 years. There's also going to be quite a bit of litigation. So you're looking at uh, uh, probably the, the mid-2030s before the tunnels become operational. So in the meantime, in order to... Uh get the project off the ground. A lot of the parties involved want to pursue this program, what they call adaptive management, which you summed up very well, saying build it now, fix it later. That's exactly what they plan on doing. But it's kind of interesting, as you pointed out in the Stockton record, that for any changes to happen after the Delta tunnels are built, it takes a unanimous decision of a committee. And who is sitting on this committee? Right. So the the issue is that there would be, and this this is according to draft documents, none of this is final yet, but there would be a seven-member committee that would be comprised of representatives from several government agencies, both the water agencies and the fish and wildlife agencies. And then there would be two members of the committee from the water contractors themselves who would stand to benefit from the tunnels and would receive water from the tunnels. So those are the folks down south, perhaps the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and some of the agricultural groups in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, but by virtue of their position on this uh, committee, they would certainly have a fair amount of influence, it appears, over how the tunnels are operated in the future. And that's really key because, you know, the tunnels themselves uh, uh, may not cause uh, the greatest harm to the Delta ecosystem. It's how they're operated that could be problematic and exactly how much water they're going to push through those those tunnels. So this seven-member committee uh, would have quite a bit of influence over that and would be able to uh, determine whether changes in the way the Delta tunnels op operate are merited. So the bottom line is that, you know, these are supposed to be science-driven decisions about operations in the future. And the concern is that by giving the water contractors a seat at the table, it's kind of the, the fox guarding the hen house uh, because they have a vested interest in uh, receiving as much water as possible from the project. That's the fundamental concern that some of the critics have. Kind of interesting, though, that I didn't hear you mention any seat at that table for, say, Delta farmers or other interested private parties. Yeah, that's right. It's it's just it's government officials 
and uh, and the water contractors. Uh, there, there's some language in there about uh, consulting with stakeholders, and that's not defined very specifically. I think stakeholders probably does refer to Delta farmers and other water users who are not involved in the tunnels directly, but may may be concerned that they may suffer some impacts. So there is some language in there about informal consultations, but it certainly would not be the level of influence the contractors would have by actually sitting on this committee uh, personally. What are some of the variables in the Delta watershed that are causing these people to want to promote a build it now, fix it later uh, process? Well, you, you just can't answer. It, it's such a big project that you just can't answer all of the scientific questions right now. Uh, what the tunnels do is they basically fundamentally replumb the delta. They change the plumbing in the delta. Uh, and, and no one can say with absolute certainty how that's going to affect the delta. They have models and, and, and predictions that they rely upon to determine, you know, what the changes in water quality might be, for example. Um, but, but no one knows for sure. You know, you're looking at a future that includes the potential for sea level rise. Uh, you're looking at changes in, uh, runoff patterns from the Sierra Nevada. You're looking at, uh, less snow and more rain. Uh, so changes in the timing of when that water enters the Delta. There's a lot that could change. I mean, again, we're talking, you know, 20 years down the road, really, before this thing even starts. There's so much that can change over that period of time and then looking down the road even beyond that to 2050, 2060 and beyond, there's so much that can change that uh, that really the only way to proceed with the project is to have some kind of adaptive management, build it now, fix it later uh, plan in place. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be able to do it because you can't answer all those questions right now. Do you know of any instance in the United States where projects that are similar to this, obviously nothing is equal to the Delta Tunnels project, but similar type projects where the whole concept of adaptive management has worked? You know, I, I've, I've asked that question of a, of a number of folks, and, and several several referred me to the, the Florida Everglades restoration, which I'm not intimately familiar with. But adaptive management is supposed to be a, a keystone of that project as well. They're supposed to be... Uh, taking a look at the changes that they're making and determining if they're working and if they need to, to tweak what they're doing. And that's supposed to be a science-based project. It's kind of like a big experiment, right? You conduct an experiment, you learn from the experiment, and then you change uh, what you're doing moving forward from that point. And it's been a kind of a mixed review from the Everglades, uh, uh, the National Academies of Science, which is a, a prestigious independent body of scientists, has concluded that uh, the, the, the vision of adaptive management in Florida remains unfulfilled today, uh, you know, 15, 16 years after they started that effort. That doesn't mean there haven't been steps, positive steps in the Everglades, uh, but they haven't come as far as they want to. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a concept that is, is, is widely backed by scientists. They think adaptive management is a good idea. Uh, the problem is how do you actually do it at the end of the day when you have competing interests involved. I mean, you have uh, uh, fish and wildlife agencies in the Delta that want to, to attempt to stabilize or restore the ecosystem. Uh, you have water delivery uh, agencies that are going to want to maximize deliveries to some extent in light of the fact that it's a $17 billion project. There's going to be a lot of pressure to do that. Uh, so when you have parties at the table who are coming from you know very different perspectives and have different agendas, it can be very hard to have a science-based 
adaptive management process that is not tainted by some of those competing interests. Yeah, and there's all sorts of outside influences, as you point out in your article, you know, future legislation, changes in administrations, uh, any sort of shift in, in politics, as would be, say, if there were new laws uh, limiting groundwater use, that could put the pressure on to export even more Delta water. Yeah, and that's already happened. I mean, the state is has has the the uh, is for the first time is substantially regulating groundwater use, and that is going to lead to restrictions in certain areas on how much water folks can uh, uh, bring up in their wells from underground. And if they are limited uh, uh, on groundwater, then their demand for surface water is naturally going to increase. So there may be more pressure uh, applied to the delta. Uh, from folks down south who are seeing their groundwater supplies limited. We also saw Congress recently pass legislation uh, sponsored by some of the Republicans in the South Valley who represent those farmers, uh, and that legislation would, would potentially really uh, uh, increase uh, the amount of pressure on the Delta as well, increase Delta water exports in a number of different ways. Uh, so, you know, there's... 30 years, 20, 30 years down the road is a long time. Things can change. Legislation will come and go and, and the political winds will shift. And that's, again, one of the concerns about this process is, uh, you know, who's going to be making some of these decisions 20 or 30 years down the road? Is Congress going to step in and override all this or, you know, who will the governor be? There's just a lot of questions uh, when you're looking at that large of a, of a time frame. One expert you talked to, Jerry Merrill, said that wildlife agencies would have the authority to yank the water users' permits if the conditions in the Delta deteriorate. Right, and that's that's true, and uh, uh, they they will always uh, maintain that authority. So the the fact that the contractors are on this committee does not give them some kind of absolute veto power, um, but it still does give them some influence over the process. Uh, decisions made by that committee uh, are supposed to be unanimous in order to be uh, in order to move forward. So let's say the tunnels are are causing damage that was not expected to the delta. This committee, on paper at least, this committee would have to unanimously recommend reductions in exports through the tunnels in order for that to be implemented. Uh, nevertheless, the wildlife agencies have issued these permits, and the permits do. Uh, if things deteriorate, the permits do allow those agencies to pull those uh, to pull those permits and to basically shut down the project in in an extreme case. It wouldn't be absolute veto power that the contractors would have, but but they would still have a lot of influence being on that committee. Well, let's talk a little bit about things that will probably happen within our lifetime, maybe even next week. There's pending litigation as well as uh, the water contractors have to decide whether they want to spend the money or not on this. Right. So this uh, Monday, the uh, the 21st of August, is the deadline for uh, folks to sue over the environmental impact report uh, that the state uh, basically finalized uh, about a month ago. Uh, so they have a certain amount of time in which they can file lawsuits, and I think you will see quite a number of them. Uh, if not late this week, then certainly by Monday, because Monday is the deadline. And that's basically their opportunity to say, hey, the state screwed up and the environmental impacts of this project are going to be much greater than they are described in these documents. Uh, so you'll see a number of those lawsuits, but it's important to recognize that, that there are any number of other areas in which this project may be challenged. Uh, I won't get into that right now, but, but 
this this is a legal battle that will be fought in many different arenas over the next few years. This is really just the first round of lawsuits that we're looking at here on uh, on Monday. And then you mentioned the financing, and yes, so the uh, so the tunnels are expected to cost seventeen billion dollars, and the water agencies that would receive water from the tunnels that would benefit from the tunnels are expected to pay that cost or supposed to pay that cost. Uh, so they right now are in the middle of making these decisions about whether or not they're going to be willing to pony up the cash. Obviously, it's a substantial investment. Uh, they're really not going to get much more water, if any more water, out of it uh, than they do today. Uh, so it's a difficult decision for them to make. The Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which is the largest user of uh, urban user of Delta water, uh, is supposed to vote on that issue in late September. So everyone's watching that pretty closely to decide if, you know, basically, are, are these folks going to be willing to, to pick up the tab or not? And it's going to be decision time pretty soon for them. But it's going to be a long project that we will be following closely. And Alex Breitler will be following it a lot closer than many of us, reporter for the Stockton Record. Alex, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. And we'll keep following the story of the Delta Tunnels Project here on the KSDE Farm Hour. If you've never experimented with cover crops, there are a lot of benefits for putting in what's called a cover crop during the fall for both gardeners and farmers. And there's going to be a great class on cover cropping coming up at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply in Grass Valley on Saturday, August 26th. We're talking with their product development manager, Sarah Griffin Bubakar. And Sarah, what exactly are the benefits to cover cropping that people may not know about? Well, there's a lot of benefits. Um, it depends on why you want a cover crop. So there's lots of different reasons to use one. Um, they can obviously fix nitrogen. That'd probably be the number one benefit. It brings um, atmospheric nitrogen and puts it right in the soil, right where your plants can use it. Um, it also adds organic matter. So when you're amending your garden, the two only two expensive amendments are nitrogen, fertilizer, and organic matter like compost. So this uh, cover crop will do both of those. It also can suppress weeds over the winter and improve soil tilth and increase biology in the soil. Um, it can uh, reduce erosion. It can help with certain pest problems because it'll harbor beneficial insects. Uh, it can even provide winter feed for animals. Helps with crop rotation, which is very important, and it just—it's more of a natural crop rotation, and it can increase water infiltration in the soil. Let's talk about that last point because uh, that's important for gardeners and farmers who who want to cut down the amount of irrigation they have to do. And that has to do with the deep-rooted nature of cover cropping, allowing the water to penetrate even deeper into the soil profile. Well, yeah, exactly. It will, it can be, especially some cover crops have very large roots like daikon radish. So you can plant daikon radish and as it grows, it busts through some hard uh, soils that would otherwise be hard to penetrate and allow the water to stay, go down deeper into the soil profile. While at the same time, it, all of those roots and all of that organic matter is like a sponge holding on to water. So if you have a healthy cover cropping system, then yeah, over time you would need to irrigate less and less. And as you mentioned that by having a cover crop, you're providing, if you will, a good bug hotel for beneficial insects who may be inspired to spend the winter on your property. 
absolutely. Cover crop doesn't necessarily have to mean a crop you put in between, you know, your succession planting. It can also be a hedgerow, so something along the the border lines of your of your garden area or your farming area that would work as a protective area for these beneficial insects. So it can provide uh, pollen for the pollinizing. A lot of our beneficial insects are pollinators when they're adults and they're voracious bug eaters as larvae. And so it'll provide habitat for them so that if you do have a pest problem in your garden, those beneficial insects are just lying in wait, waiting to gobble them up. There's a lot of confusion among gardeners and farmers about when you take out a cover crop or what do you do to a cover crop in spring when it's time to plant. Do you take it out? Do you just mow it down? What do you do with a cover crop? And at what point should you be cutting down a cover crop? Right. Well, that's a really good question. So there's a couple of different schools of thought on that. There's um, if you're a tiller, if you till, then there's one way to do it. And then there's if you're a no-till person. And no-till is, is pretty hip right now um, because of the, you know, maintaining the mycorrhizae in the soil. And so if you till, then you bust up all that mycorrhizae and it's hard for it to really get established mycorrhizae being the beneficial fungus in the soil. So the no-till method is pretty popular. Um, but the key thing to remember, whether you're tilling or not tilling, is that you don't want to cut the cover crop and just let it lay. Because if you let it lay, then all of that nitrogen that's in the plant, it's been sequestering, it's been grabbing from the atmosphere and putting it into the plant, it's all just going to go back into the atmosphere. And it can happen within minutes. Within an hour, most of that nitrogen's gone. So the key thing is that once you cut, you have to cover it, whether you cover it by tilling it into the soil or whether if you're doing a no-till, then you're going to cover it with another layer of something. So finished compost or something else. So just to keep that, that nitrogen in the soil rather than going back into the atmosphere. So the key is to cut the cover crop when it's about half in bloom, because if you allow the cover crop to go to seed, then you've got weed problems and not to mention a lot of that nitrogen that you've been keeping from taking from the atmosphere is now going into seed production. So all that energy, rather than going back into the soil as now fertilizer or green manure, is then going into seed production. So you don't want your cover crop to go to seed. So the key is to cut it when it's about half in bloom. So you just start to notice the blooms, about half the crop is in bloom, then you're going to cut it and immediately cover it, whether you're covering it by tilling it in or covering it with a mulch. Then you're going to wait at least three weeks if you're tilling, perhaps even longer, depending on how thick your mat is. Um, if you're doing a no-till, you're going to wait at least three weeks in planting to give the green manure a chance to break down. If you don't do that, it actually gets quite hot in the soil, and you can burn your seedlings or your seeds, and uh, nothing will grow for about three weeks until that's able to break down. It could be sooner, could be longer, depending on how active the soil biology is at the time. For both the small-scale gardener and the large-scale farmer, what are some alternatives for mulching that cut cover crop if you're practicing no-till? I mean, you can use straw, you can use alfalfa hay, 
you can use a finished compost, anything to cover up that that layer of the green cover crop. You just really don't want it to go limp and have all the water come out of it because with the water will go the nitrogen. Let's talk about some various cover crops. And I imagine uh, it depends on what you're growing and uh, where you are and uh, what sort of soil you have. But among the, the fall-sown cover crops, what are the most popular? Well, we have... Um, we have formulated here at Peaceful Valley, we formulated a couple of mixes that are really popular. Um, they are, we call them soil builder mixes because they will build your soil if you use them every year. And the soil builder mixes have a mix of grasses and legumes. So the legumes are those nitrogen fixers. So that's the ones that we've mainly been talking about as fixing nitrogen. But grasses also have a lot of benefits, mainly being just a lot of biomass that they they grow quickly and put a lot of organic matter into the soil. Soil builder mixes have vetch and bell beans, which are a kind of fava bean. So they grow really well in the cold weather. Um, and the vetch is like a vine and it climbs up the bell beans and it climbs up. There's also white oats and peas in there. And the, the peas and the vetch use the oats and the bell beans as scaffolding to climb up. So it'll be quite the tangled mess, ideally. Um, it'll be full of beneficial insects, ideally. And um, and then when you chop it down, you want to do that before it's fully blooming. And I imagine when you chop it down, you want to do it in segments of no more than 6 to 12 inches before you take it to the ground. Right. Well, hopefully you're, by the spring, your cover crop is quite lush and prolific and so you want to chop it up as much as possible because the more it's chopped up into little pieces uh the quicker it breaks down and so you will chop it up and then either till it in or cover it up so maybe uh, mowing it after you've chopped it up would help yeah yeah definitely key is to really cover it up this mix that you're talking about your premium uh, soil builder mix uh can get rather high can't it about what four to six feet it can yeah, so what I use is I use a weed whacker when I go to, to chop it down. And I'll just chop, like you said, the top six inches, then do another layer, then do another layer um, until it gets down to the ground. And what is the application rate for the garden? What is the application rate for a farm? Let's see, you're going to do three to five pounds for a thousand square feet for the soil builder mix. Keeping in mind that because it is a lot of different sized seeds, Seed spreaders can be a little bit challenging because you've got the smaller vetch seeds and the larger um, bell beans and, and that. So it will be a little bit harder to spread. Also, it's not pre-inoculated. And so if you add it, if you add the inoculant, it can get a little bit sticky. So I usually just spread it by hand. Um, now, if you're a farmer... You, it's 70 to 120 pounds per acre, depending on how rich your soil is. Obviously, if your soil is, is quite poor, you're going to go the higher application rate. In that case, using a more professional grade seed spreader would be best, or even a seed driller. If you're drilling the seed, then it would be, you could go the lower application rate as well because you'd have more germination. What depth is ideal for planting the seed? Well, because... It, it's tough, like I said, because it's so many different sized seeds, you don't want to go too deep. So I would only go 
about a quarter inch deep because of the fetch mainly as the smallest seeds and the oats as well. So you don't want to go too deep. I'd say a quarter inch to a half inch deep at the most. A lot of people just spread it over the top and that works too. Does it need irrigation after planting or can you just wait for the fall rains to begin? It really depends. Um, A big mistake what I see a lot of people do um, while they, oh, I just didn't have success with my cover crop. Well, usually it has to do with irrigation because you do, it is a seed that needs to, all like all seeds, it needs to be completely moist the whole time. And so if it's allowed to dry out, then the seed will just die. And so I like to time it when, right when the fall rains have started, but the soil is still warm. If the soil is too cold when you plant it, then the seeds won't germinate or they'll take a really long time to germinate. So you ha- you have to time it right. Sometimes Mother Nature doesn't cooperate with you with the timing and the fall rains will come later or they'll come too early when you're, you're, the rest of your crop is still in. You can irrigate to get the timing right. You have to keep the soil completely moist while it's germinating. Once it's germinated, you can let it dry out in between, especially because it'll be cooler and so you don't need to water as often. But you still need to pay attention to dry spells. And if it is, if we do have a dry spell, which oftentimes we do in January in particular, is a pretty dry month most most often. So, you know, giving it a good drench once a week or so, even when it's cold, you don't really need much more than that. Well, that will really help the, the cover crop thrive and you'll get the most out of it. So I guess ideal planting time for this really, it depends on the weather, but basically uh, sometime between Labor Day and Halloween. Yeah, I'd say that's that's pretty safe. I mean, you don't want to get your crops, your summer crops out too soon because you want to really, you know, maximize how much you get out of them. But then there there comes to be a point where, you know, those tomatoes, while you may, may still have some green tomatoes on the plant, if the tomato is really suffering and, and not looking very healthy, you got to pull it out sooner rather than later because otherwise you're just inviting pest problems. Peaceful Valley has a, a wide array of cover crops and cover crop mixes, and you can check out what they have online at groworganic.com and if you want to find out more about cover cropping head up to grass valley to peaceful valley farm supply on saturday august 26th and sarah tell us about the class that you're going to be uh, teaching oh it's just about an hour long which i am a talker so it's hard for me to keep it to an hour so be prepared for it to be an hour and 20 we just go through the basics of cover crops and inoculants and all the things we just talked about, but more in depth, it's geared towards gardeners and farmers. And I usually tell people if, if you, it's a very overview basic class. And so then after class, I'm willing to stay and talk to you about your specific situation so we can find the right cover crop for you. It's all about cover cropping. Sarah Griffin Bubakar is the product development manager at Peaceful Valley Farm Supply. Sarah, good talking with you and happy cover cropping. Thanks, you too, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.